Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast about mental health. I'm your host, Zora, and this podcast is brought to you by Limbic. In this episode, we're joined by Annabel Rajgor, who is the long-term conditions clinical lead for NHS Talking Therapies in Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland, provided by Vita Health Group. Hi, Annabel. Hi. Hi, Zora. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for uh, inviting me to take part. I'm excited. Me too. I really wanted to get into the kind of subject of physical health and mental health. And I think you really, as the long-term conditions clinical lead, you really kind of embody in your role the links there between physical health and mental health. But just in case there's someone who's listening who hasn't really heard about what the links are and how important it is to think about long-term conditions and physical health when we're thinking about mental health. Could you give us a little bit of a rundown of to why do you think it's this why do you think this is important? So I've been working in mental health for about 20 years and we often see patients with long-term conditions coming through the door and the long-term condition is often a feature of that person's mental health problem. And It's knowing how to make sense of that, how to make sense of how the mind and the body interact with one another. And there's been a huge gap in the understanding between those links. And therefore, helping to understand helps us to just provide a better understanding of what somebody's needs are. And hopefully getting to a point where it's not mental or physical, it's just somebody's healthcare, really. But but I, I think the importance of mental health and understanding the link between mental health and physical health is really important for the patients as well. It's really important for us all to understand that you can't have one without the other. Yeah, I guess it's then looking looking at a person quite holistically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Interestingly, I was reading the Long-Term Conditions Positive Practice Guide the other day, and it talked about, I think it was the expert reference group, talked about having the person at the centre. And I guess that's really what you're talking about, is having the person at the centre, whatever their needs may be, whether they're physical, mental health, whatever it is. What does that look like, having a person at the centre? I mean, Mm. I was was just thinking, for example, like what a person-centred assessment looks like or something like that. Well, a person-centred assessment is putting the patient at the heart of what you're doing. In terms of the assessment, it might be treating that patient that they're the expert on themselves, that we might be the experts in CBT or counselling or whatever type of therapy that we're providing, but um, they're the experts on them and they know themselves the best. And it's recognising that level of expertise that they bring to the table and working quite collaboratively with patients in that way. It's also about asking them what their needs are, what what their what they think the problem is, how the problem is affecting them in different parts of their life, so at work and education or um, in their family relationships, at home in their everyday hobbies and interests. So I think it's about a person-centred approach 
is about recognizing that that person is an expert on themselves and asking them relevant questions which are pertinent to their life and their lifestyle and understanding how the problem is affecting them and their lives. But I think it's also important to involve them in decisions about so the outcome of that assessment, so decisions about the treatment uh, and what comes next, so giving people choice as to their treatment, uh, what might be useful for them and giving them a rationale as to why this might be useful or this might be useful and letting patients be involved in their decision making, but an informed decision making as well. So it's, you know, we need to explain to them um, what the choices are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you run uh, a living with breathlessness mm. course. Is it? Can you tell me a bit more about that? Actually, just I'm just specifically interested in this one because I thought let's delve into yeah. a long term condition and what we can do. Yeah. I think like breathlessness, asthma seems to make yeah. sense as a first stop. Absolutely. So um, we were asked by our ICB to create a pathway into our service for people with COPD. Um, which is uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, and this is a condition which predominantly uh, can cause breathlessness um, uh, as one of the main symptoms that most people experience with COPD will be some degree of breathlessness. And thinking back to your earlier question, why it's important, Important, the link between physical health and mental health. I sometimes find it easier to explain in terms of examples. So for COPD, for example, if you're breathless, then what happens is, is that if you're breathless, that sends messages to your brain that you're under threat, that there is a risk to life. So your body goes into fight or flight mode, which releases adrenaline, and our body starts to react with all sorts of sensations, so tingling, feeling more shortness of, shortness of breath, uh, palpitations, dizziness, which feeds then back into a person's interpretation that that experience is dangerous, that they are uh, in more danger, which exacerbates that cycle. Does that make sense? So it kind right. of makes so it So you've worse. gone into fight or flight mode in a yeah. way. yeah. So there's a, a, a good indication of where somebody with COPD might uh, experience a, a type of panic disorder um, and where those two, the mental and the physical health, can influence one another. The other, that makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, so the other danger is that with COPD as well is that patients, if they are anxious about feeling breathless, are more likely to avoid situations which might lead them to feeling breathless which often reduces their activity levels, which can lead to uh, our muscles becoming less effective, our, our circulation being less effective, and therefore blood and oxygen is, is less efficient at getting around the body. So therefore, you're then more breathless. So again, the psychology then feeds back into the physical health. So it's a really fascinating dynamic. But I think one of the things that came clear through a lot of the work that I've been doing with pulmonary rehab teams and with respiratory services, um, you know, really trying to work collaboratively with our physical health colleagues is to create something which is going to be relevant for patients, 
And what we discovered is that patients with COPD experience breathlessness, and that can be a huge feature, but it can also be that that breathlessness is caused by lung cancer or asthma or long COVID or heart failure. So we didn't want to exclude those patients from benefiting from um, a course that might be useful for them. But this is something that we're piloting at the moment. Uh, We've agreed to do it as a a face-to-face group. Uh, It's a psychoeducational group delivered at a step two by some of our LTC trained PWPs. Uh, And yeah, it's going really well. We're getting great feedback from the patients. We're going to do a focus group at the end of it to get some feedback um, and very much would like patients to be involved in in the design and the refining of this before we go live with it. But yeah, it's exciting. You just mentioned LTC trained PWPs and I'm just thinking if I was a PWP Mm -hmm. somewhere through my training and I'm interested in long-term conditions training, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? Is this like an extra module? Is it, is it training that you provide in the service? Yeah. So it's usually training that's provided in the service. So uh, if you're employed as a PWP, you can request to be on the next cohort of uh, of training, and it's usually uh, a five day training event. Um, I'm, I think in most institutions, most universities, it's five consecutive days, um, but it really depends on your area and what that how that university provides. But but yes, it's a five day training looking at how to. Um, understand how to adapt your treatments for depression and anxiety within the context of certain long-term conditions. It's an excellent training um, and it's a real badge of honour, I think, to to say that you've been on this training. But I uh, don't want to, you know, in terms of the requirements, don't want to scare anybody off. It's nowhere near as intense, I think, as, uh, as the PWP training or the high-intensity training. Uh, so, but yeah, it really does help to inform your practice uh, helps you to feel a lot more confident when working with uh, patients with with long term conditions, because you know we're the experts in depression and anxiety, aren't we? We're not the experts in cancer or COPD or diabetes, you know. So it's it's it can feel a bit like we're out of our comfort zone a little bit sometimes. So I think it just builds with that confidence. Actually, let's poke at that. So if I'm a PWP who's thinking about long-term conditions and I'm feeling slightly slightly wary of, well, how much physical health am I going to have to know? Do I do I need to, if I wanted to do something like deliver the living with breathlessness course or work with patients with long-term conditions, how much physical health do I need to learn? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, it, I'm going to hold my hands up. I haven't done the PWP high-intense LTC training. Um <laughs> Uh, I don't think there is any necess- any need for you to have a physical health background in order to do the training. And I think when you're doing the training, the focus is still very much. So what I've seen of the curriculum and when I've spoken to PWPs, what I've seen is that the focus is still very much on treating depression and anxiety. You know, that's what we're good at in NHS talking mm-hmm. therapies. We're good at treating anxiety and depression and the focus is not to drift away too much from that but to understand that maybe patients with long-term conditions there is um, 
as well as clinical implications to your treatment, such as what I was saying with COPD and panic. Um, but there might also be practical ones that you, we might need to be aware of. So people with long-term conditions might sometimes need a little bit more time. They might need some extra sessions. It's really, really important for all of our patients, but especially with long-term conditions, for people to have the opportunity to tell their story and to be heard. You know, it's not very often in day-to-day -day life that you get the opportunity to to really tell your story to somebody that's really listening and somebody who's non-judgmental and, you know, you're not going to offend or you're not going, you know, that's, uh, and so I think being listened to, being, uh, being able to tell that story, um, to feel heard and believed, I think is really important. So giving people that little bit of extra time Patients with LTCs might sometimes uh, DNA a little bit more as well. So it might be around building in flexibility around appointments that people might have or if people are feeling poorly or tired after appointments, making sure that you know your session with them is timed um, appropriately. So I think there's a lot to, uh, to talk about on the training. And I think what many... What, what most training does is give you the, the bones, doesn't it? And it's up to us to kind of flesh out that information through either further reading, but just building up your experience, really. I think nothing, no amount of training can really substitute the wealth of information that you get from your patient, from learning through direct contact with your patients. Um, Sorry, I kind of feel like I've drifted off from your your question there. <laughs> no, it's, it's really useful. It's really useful. I guess dispelling the myth that you need to know too much about physical health and that you'll, you know, become, you know, trained as a nurse while you're, yeah, while you're doing yeah. your long-term condition training. It's not that scary. No, no, no. I think, you know, the, the, I, I, I think the thing that I cling on to is very much, you know, knowing where my expertise lie and that we're not here to replace the expertise by diabetic specialist nurses and oncologists and um, respiratory consultants. You know, they do a fabulous job. Uh, and uh, it's being, I think it's really exciting that we are trying to recognise mental health as part of uh, that wraparound care that people need and deserve, that we are part of the treatment that people receive, that mental health is being considered part of that package of care. Indeed. And and much, much better for the patient. I, I was just thinking of a project I worked on when I was at NHS England in the Talking Therapies um, national team. And uh, it was a service in Hertfordshire, I think, that um, where I think a junior doctor had done uh, an audit on a respiratory ward and they'd found that somewhere up to 50% of the readmissions on their ward were actually anxiety. Mm. So they sort of felt like, well, the patient's coming mm. in, but they're not getting the care that they actually mm. need. So they're here, we can look after them physically, but we don't have a mental health kind of component yeah. here. So can we strengthen the ties between the ward mm. and talking therapies? Because that's why they can be well treated for the thing that they mm. need at that moment in time. And of course, that then reduces the readmissions, mm -hmm. which is great because what you want is the patient at the right place at the right mm -hmm. time. So they're getting what they mm -hmm. need 
and then and that also then of course frees up beds for other absolutely. Patients. I mean, look, you can understand how terrifying it must be for a patient to uh, with COPD, you know, to be thinking, you know, is is this anxiety or is this an exacerbation? Is it a flare up of my COPD? And a lot of us will probably err on the side of caution and just get ourselves to hospital, isn't it? But, but you know, uh, which is the right thing to do, probably, is to err on the side of caution. If you're not sure, then... then uh, but I also think there's, there's space there to be tooling patients up, to help them to understand more about the psychological element, more more about what panic attacks look like and what anxiety looks like and how that fight or flight system works within the body and why and just helping them to understand themselves a bit better so they're in a better position to make that decision you know is this anxiety or is it a flare-up absolutely that is the exact question that i use whenever i'm whenever i'm showing anyone limbic access or triage chatbot in limbic there is always there's a question around um uh, do you have any of these? Uh, what asthma is one of mm-hmm. them? And I always pick on the asthma one. And slight personal anecdote, but same. I was diagnosed with asthma in my 30s. Mm-hmm. And so I had no idea whether what I was experiencing is a panic mm-hmm. attack or an mm-hmm. asthma attack. And so I always give that example of, you know, am I managing my asthma? Well, well, I don't know because I don't know the difference because this is all really new to me. And I don't know which one it is. And that's very, very scary because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. can I not breathe because I'm experiencing anxiety or because actually I do need to get myself to hospital or I do need to take an inhaler mm-hmm. or things like that. And it is really confusing. And I'm sure at the beginning, when you are first diagnosed, it, it you, you probably get it wrong. Well, I definitely got it wrong probably most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably ended up seeking medical care a bit more than I needed to, but you just don't know. And I think that might just be part of the the process of transitioning, isn't it, to having a, a long-term condition is there is a lot of learning about your body and learning about your mind and, and a lot of reassurance, which is probably appropriate as well. I think that's, that's fine. Um, I suppose when we're starting to see people who are um yeah those those kind of you know constantly turning up at hospital uh who are uh but i think i think it's the the nurses are are often aware that oh we think this is probably anxiety because you know there isn't any phlegm or mucus that they're coughing up and uh it is getting better when they've taken their medication you know that sort of thing so that maybe there's an indication of uh, it's probably more psychological um the reason for the flare-up but up until recently there hasn't really been anywhere to send those patients to and yes they could send to NHS talking therapies like anybody who's got uh, a GP you know registered uh, in LLR is that they can come to our service but this is about relationship building with those nurses that they know that they have a uh, direct entry into our service that those uh, respiratory nurses can refer a patient straight into us and they know that that patient will be picked up and assessed by somebody who's done the training um, who is long-term conditions trained and that we've got these packages of care now like the living well with breathlessness groups like um, silver cloud you know space from lung conditions mm-hmm. um you know, and, and other options as well. But uh, so them knowing that and them knowing this is what we've got, this is the offer that we've got for you and your patients is is 
really reassuring for them as well. For sure. And that pathway sounds fantastic. So you've got a patient who's come into some sort of medical setting, whether it's a hospital or a GP mm-hmm. or somewhere, and then the the professional, the clinician who's seeing them has the confidence that if they make this mm. referral, they know that they'll be seen by the person they need to see, which is mm. great. It's, it's always nice when you're referring on and you're signposting. It's really difficult when you're not mm. sure whether this will be exactly what they need. But this is brilliant. So you, you can rest assured, rest assured that your patient's getting to where they need to get. But I'm curious about how you manage to engage those clinicians, those physical health clinicians in the first mm. place. So how do you how do you get to a point where the nurse there or whichever, whoever it is, but I guess in this example, the nurse who's looking mm. at someone is thinking, okay, this is probably something I need to make a referral to talk to therapies mm. for. How do you get how do you first get them to, to well know that the service exists in the first mm-hmm. place? Um, and then know how to refer? How does that work? So in the initial stages of the 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 development of the pathway, a lot of it uh, was understanding the structures that are already in place and what's happened before and what's worked and what's not worked. But a lot of it is relationship building. A lot of it is uh, getting out there, doing the groundwork, finding out who's who, finding out how the services operate uh, within, you know, my case in Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland, um, who's in charge of what and who do I need to speak to. And then it was really a case of uh, introducing myself. I went out and did presentations to uh, the respiratory teams, both inpatient and within the community. I attended their meetings. I went and shadowed some pulmonary rehab and did some training for them on mental health. You know, they did make my life a lot easier because they were already really equipped with knowledge about mental health and COPD lung conditions they were you know they were already pretty well skilled up by um so that that made my life a lot easier that that you know and uh, all i had to do is kind of walk in and say this is you know what what can we do to help your patients you know what is the what can we design within the resources that we've got that would be helpful. Um, and and so we spent a lot of time, you know, discussing that and, and talking about it and came up with the Living Well with Breathlessness group. Um, and as I said, we're piloting this at the moment and hopefully get some feedback from, from these patients who have um, willingly offered to be guinea pigs for us, you know, but <laughs> it's going really well so far. So yeah, a lot of relationship building um but i think one of the things that i was expecting was some resistance from physical health teams i think i was expecting them to be thinking oh this is just another piece of work that i'm going to have to do it's very cynical of me isn't it is to think you know in that way but yeah i was expecting to be going in there and selling this to them but actually they were mm-hmm. they were so welcoming of our services because they they recognize the role of uh, of mental health within the work that they they do and can see the benefits already it was very easy to sell something to you know um sell this idea to them because they had already bought into it um so so you know they were very welcoming very happy to offer up their time uh, for me and their service. So yeah, it's been great. It's been, yeah. So do you have a kind of single point of contact there that you kind of maybe a lead of, of a team or something that you kind of 
um, work mm. with? Well, I guess it's um, it's understanding. So I've been a therapist for a long time and going into a clinical leadership position, you kind of starting to understand the wider world and how mental health services fit uh, within the larger systems. And you will get somebody who is uh, coordinating the services within the ICB, um, who you can talk directly to. But I've just gone out there and found out who's the lead nurse for the respiratory teams inpatient, who's the the lead for pulmonary rehab and just yeah annoyed them and emailed them and <laughs> uh and said please come and talk to me and uh because I really want to help your patients with their mental health you know with with their needs so but as I said it's they've they've been a wonderful team to work with um and I'm currently in the process of shadowing the complex COPD clinic at one of the hospitals with the consultants. And that's been, you know, as I said, before, nothing substitutes for that direct experience with patients and just listening to their stories and, um, uh, and, and listening to their medical journeys as well, what they've been through. Um, but yeah, no, it's been fabulous. It's been really interesting, really interesting work. And from the shadowing that you've done and from the first group that's coming through, mm. um, are there any sort of patient stories of kind of where you've picked up someone from this pathway that maybe wouldn't have got talking therapies support otherwise? Yeah. So I think being there in the clinic has been helpful. Having, building up that co-location of mental health providers actually sitting in on consultants clinics or being available for patients if somebody would like to discuss their mental health with somebody has been really helpful and I think there's been a few occasions where patients have been a bit ambivalent about mental health you know they're there as you can understand with a physical health problem and they're there to see their physical health specialists. Why would they start talking about mental health? You know, um, but I think being there as a representative for uh, mental health and 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 expl- explaining a little bit about you know in saying you know I can see that you know um, this is something which is understandably very difficult for you, and I can see that this is a problem, and you know. Um, is this something that you'd like to talk more about? And, you know, how are you coping with things is just questions that people don't really get asked very often when you're so focused on the physical health side of things. So having somebody there to say, you know, how are you coping um, is massive for a lot of people. And just knowing that the that there's the option, they might not necessarily need to do it there and then, but um, but knowing that it's there, I think, is a great source of support. Do you think patients have found it a bit surprising to be asked those questions? Um, I don't know. I think sometimes my impression is that sometimes patients go in and they're, they're trying their best to keep it together, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, somebody then says, how are you coping? And shows that level of compassion and concern and then you know and then it's harder to keep that 
keep it all in, isn't it? So course, I think yeah. um, I think you have to be really careful and really sensitive about not wanting to open up too much, um, but just enough to kind of say, you know, look, this this might be an issue. Um, uh, so, but but you know, please come and talk to us if if you'd like to. We're here for you. Is that that's kind of all that maybe they need to know at that point? So, so. I don't know about surprised, but I think um, sometimes it might make people feel a bit more vulnerable when they're asked that question, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. It absolutely yeah. does. You're right. I think that that sensation of kind of feeling like you're okay until somebody else is probably really familiar to most yeah. people. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've got a very exciting new project happening within the diabetes services, if that's okay to kind of talk a bit about that, because that would be, yeah. uh, this is, I think, a bit of a game changer for mental health and physical health. So, so um, when somebody is diagnosed with a mental health, uh, a physical health problem, they often get sent for annual reviews or, or they go off like with diabetes. You'll go and see a retinal eye screening. You, you'll go for foot care. You'll have your bloods taken. You know, I mean, that's, you know, it depends on what type and at what point you are at with uh, your diagnosis. But, but mental health is very rarely asked about. And Diabetes UK did a report and made some suggestions that mental health should be offered as part of an holistic care at the point of diagnosis. So it should be offered out to patients. Um, mm-hmm. For a long time in talking therapies and before this IAP services, we've always waited for patients to come to us in a way. I know we've done a lot of work yeah. to try and encourage patients to come to us, but it's really been patients going, actually, I think I'm not doing quite so well, or this is a problem for me. I'll go and speak to my GP or, you know, I'll Google it and find out, you know, so we've, it's been really hard, I think, for patients. That's a huge barrier for a lot of patients accessing psychological support. And especially if you have a long-term condition as well, because a lot of symptoms of that long-term condition can overshadow symptoms of depression and anxiety. So again, that's another barrier for patients accessing psychological support. So, so bearing in mind the report from Diabetes UK, what we're piloting in Leicester at the moment is everybody at the point of diagnosis of their diabetes will be offered a screening a appointment with a Vita Health Group. Uh, so a lot of these patients that come to us may be absolutely fine. There may be no concerns there, in which case that's great, you know. But the, you know, we do we do estimate that that you're twice as likely to experience depression and anxiety if you've got diabetes, and especially that very sensitive period following diagnosis where you're going through that huge life transition of being diagnosed with a long-term condition. That that's a really important point, I think, to be picking up and. Um, and screening for any concerns at that point. So in terms of the pathway, is it, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, this is my lack of knowledge, mm. but it's the GP who, who diagnoses? So with diabetes, the, uh, the majority of patients have got type 2 diabetes, and that's mm-hmm. often diagnosed through a blood test following patient experiencing symptoms. Um, 
and the the blood test will diagnose the the diabetes yeah and then does the patient then so is it the gp that then refers them or is it just they'll automatically get something which mm. says you've been invited to a screening so there's the national diabetes audit register so that uh so for things like retinal eye screening that that gets automatically triggered and you get a letter um for our services and for other services, it'll be a, a GP referral. So uh, we're going to send a, a text message to patients, um, uh, which is after a letter that's been sent out to say that the, the GP service uh, would like to refer you to Vitamines because there is a relationship between uh, emotional well-being and diabetes but patients have got seven days to opt out if they don't want to do it so we're but we're, we're looking at it as it being an opt-out rather than an opt-in um mm -hmm. so uh so yeah I'm, I'm really hoping that what this will do is is reach a lot of those patients who are underrepresented in our community who might be struggling and are not aware that they're struggling um and even if they're not struggling they know where to come if it changes so yeah i think it's really exciting it's really exciting when did this all start because i'm just thinking i'd love to see what the um what the effect is on outcomes mm, yeah um, but I guess we won't know that for a little yeah, while. Yeah, well, we're going to pilot it for a year. And if it works well, then we're going to maybe potentially roll it out for some other conditions as well. So people diagnosed with COPD and, and things like that. But I think bringing mental health into the conversation um, and doing it as, a, as an automatic thing, using technology to help us uh, has, has got to be the way forward. <laughs> you know so. absolutely and I'm guessing you'll agree with that working from Limbic <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely there is so much we can do with technology so it does it's always great to hear mm. about new things where we're using it to to make things easier for patients to make sure they're getting to the right service at the right yeah. time and picking things up early yeah. because as as you said you know you may not know that you're struggling you also may not be struggling in that moment but you are two weeks later yeah. and the fact that you know exactly where to go you've got that text on your phone it's is fantastic that's great oh, well I'm looking forward to seeing what the outcomes of, of that yeah um, me project. too Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be back in a yeah. year then. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but Annabelle, I wanted to also ask you a bit about um, how you how you got here in a sense. So what was your journey kind mm. of coming into talking therapies and then ending up as long-term conditions clinical lead? So, okay. So I did a psychology degree. So I haven't done any nurse training. And I know that a lot of people... Um, uh, have come from kind of come into this from social work or occupational therapy or physio or a lot of them are mental health nurses. Um, I did a psychology degree and was I, I really just followed what I enjoyed. So I really enjoyed the counselling module within uh, my degree. Uh, so counselling psychology and within that it was CBT that spoke to me the most. I think that was the the modality of therapy that I seemed to kind of gravitate towards and made more sense to me about how to explain, you know, human suffering and and how to help. 
So I went off and did a master's in cognitive behavioral psychotherapy at Derby and I qualified uh, in 2008. Uh, so a little while ago now. Uh, but uh, so, and, and then in, uh, before doing the master's, I went and worked at, uh, I got a job working at the Newham demonstration project. So before I apt, there were two demonstration sites in Doncaster and Newham in London who were commissioned to prove the efficacy of CBT on a wide scale, on a, on a large a large scale, uh, for patients with with mild to moderate common mental health problems, um, making the case for it. Exactly, out. exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and following the success of Newham and Doncaster, the um, the IAP program rolled out nationally, which was uh, very exciting, um, but a very very stressful time as well for you know this huge change, huge structural change to what was then the primary care mental health services. Um, and um, I left London and went to work at Nottingham in the in uh, Nottinghamshire Trust as a CBT therapist and I was there for about 13 years altogether I think I think it was about 13 years and um decided when the contract was changing that it would be a good time to move and to branch out and try something try something new so but whilst I was working in Nottingham, I was involved. I did the LTC training. I was very keen to do it. Um, uh, and I was also working on some of our physical health pathways. So I was particularly focused on the chronic pain pathway. So working and building up relationships with the MSK teams. So working with patients with chronic pain, um, arthritic pain, all, all sorts of conditions that can lead to pain. And, and just found it fascinating, just found the relationship between mental health and physical health to be absolutely fascinating. And that bi-directional relationship where you can have, um, you know, and there's lots of research coming out that, um, you know, early, early trauma and, and, and chronic stress and the effect that that can have on our immune system and can lead to autoimmune deficiencies. You know, it's, it's just a fascinating, unexplained territory, really, um, to, to learn more about. So I've always enjoyed working in psychology uh, because, to me, it's a lifelong learning you know, you, there's always something new to develop and learn about. Um, so moved to Vita and then about eight weeks later, the, got the job as long-term conditions clinical lead. So I wasn't with Vita for very long <laughs> as a therapist. <laughs> and I did think it was a bit cheeky at the time, thinking I've only been here five minutes, but, you know, why not have a go, you know? Um, and... Um, I think I think what I've brought to the role is a, a dedication, is some fresh eyes, some new ideas, um, and uh, I've I've really enjoyed it. It's been a wonderful team to to work uh, to work with. They've been absolutely wonderful. So I've, 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 it's been a challenge 
to go from being a therapist to being a mm-hmm. clinical lead. It's it has been challenging, but it was the right time for me, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I think what you're talking about around the interest that you had um, in the relationship between physical health and mm. mental health is something that. It really does seem to be, I was just thinking of, uh, there are a couple of books that have come out in the last couple of years, When the Body Says yeah. No and the Body Keeps the yeah. Score, the, the sort of, uh, almost kind of like, not pop psychology because they're written. No, no, <laughs> But people have done books. lots and lots of research. But they mm. are very, they're very kind of, they're on sort of bestseller lists just generally nationally. Mm. So it's one of those things that lots of people seem to be very interested in and that link mm. between how your body feels and how your brain mm. feels is... Um, is really becoming something lots and lots of people are interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're interested in the link between physical and mental health, then they're two excellent books um, to start with. So When the Body Says No and Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No and the Body Keeps the Score. And Gabor Mate also wrote The Myth of Normal, which, uh, which Mm -hmm. which is a really good book as well. So great introduction books. Um, and some really, really interesting ideas. Um, but yeah, so for me, it was really, I've, I've always just followed what I enjoyed, you know, and I've always, always kind of believed that if you're enjoying what you're doing, then you're probably more likely to be good at it as well. <laughs> yeah. Know, so. yeah. That sounds like sound advice when you're, um, when you're thinking about a career in talking therapies as you start off yeah. somewhere and then follow. Yeah follow what you're interested in but I I think the space within talking therapies to be able to kind of almost indulge in what you're interested in as well because there's so many different pathways there's so many different areas that um talking therapies specialize in so we work in prisons we work with veterans we work with older adults who you know um neurodiversity physical you know it's so varied the role you know perinatal you know whatever you're interested in there is probably going to be scope for you to um if you've got a good idea then people are willing to hear it and any tips for someone who's going into or wanting to go into a sort of clinical lead position? Oh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I think I was, I, I think be yourself is the most, is one of the most important things. So, so, you know, give yourself time to uh, come into yourself and and to understand you, you know you're not expected to know everything you know um i think good relationships with the people around you i think one of the biggest things for me is having been a therapist for so long is i've been used to coming in seeing my patients seeing my supervisor and then going home whereas in a clean clinical leadership position, it's so much more about relationship building and maintaining those relationships internally and externally. So it's it's yeah. So I think I think the relationship building aspect of it is really important, kind of understanding. But I think one of the one of the things that's that triggered me to think, actually, no, I think I would really like to do this. It's a supervisor once said to me that um as a therapist, you can help one person, uh, but if you're a supervisor or a clinical lead, you can make changes and give advice to other people, and that and you're helping hundreds of people in that way. You know, so um, so I think that that was quite 
important to me when taking on the role is being able to make the changes that you think is going to be useful for people. Yeah. That's a lovely way of looking at it and very motivating. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got that drive and uh, to wanting to make some changes and uh, and want and you have got some good ideas, I, I think going into clinical leadership, it really does allow you to to kind of fan those feathers, really. Great. Yeah. So if I'm interested in long-term conditions, we've already got a couple of book recommendations. So when the body says no, the body keeps the score and the myth of normal. But anywhere else, any sort of communities of practice or places I can find lots of people who are interested yeah. in so NTCs? the um the BABCP um, have got a long-term conditions uh, um, uh, interest group, which you could apply for attendance there. I'm just about to begin co-chairing a Midlands long-term conditions community of practice within the uh, Midlands Mental Health Network and the Psychological Professions Network. So that's going to be launching fairly soon as well. So, And that's about bringing people together, bringing clinical leads and people with interests in long-term conditions within the Midlands together to share best practice um, mainly. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that. There's also, um, if you are already working for the NHS, then there is the e-learning for health. So on NHS Futures, which have got some IAPT LTC top-up training. And I think that's excellent really really great e-learning um training that that anybody can access if you've got um an account to get on um brilliant yeah just talking to people and talk to your ltc lead or your clinical leads and learn more about your ltc pathways within the service and you know in in terms of kind of you know uh other books so if you wanted to look around books around clinical health psychology so that would probably um be a good uh thing to google if you or or if you wanted to go on a shopping spree on amazon then that might be a good search um but then there's also um cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic medical problems um which is also a good book to have a look at as well Fantastic. And what you can't see, um, because this is only audio, is Annabelle looking at her bookshelves behind, which are full of books, (laughs) which look really cool. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, I think that gives us a a lot to think about and some things to do. It is actually really easy to get onto NHS Futures and it's so worth it because there's so much information. Like you said, access to things like e-learning, webinars, all sorts of things. And just connecting with other people who are asking similar questions is is fantastic. So definitely recommend that. Definitely. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Annabelle. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. You can find out more about Mabel and Grounded using the links in the episode description. You can find episodes, links and more at the podcast webpage at limbic.ai forward slash top of mind.